welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. All the new doctors are starting on the wards in the UK in August. So uh, FY1 is what that first year is called for junior doctors. And it's a really interesting time for those people that have been at medical school. They've spent five years or sometimes six years or longer training for this moment where they finally get to become doctors. And for the FY1s that are currently there, they're moving up to FY2 uh, and becoming more senior Uh, And those people end up mentoring the people coming through and those people coming through have got a heck of a year in front of them. It's a super steep learning curve. It's full of anxiety, anticipation, some excitement, but it's also a time where there are some really specific anxieties around really specific things that might be going on. Like how do you respond to a crash call? So a patient really acutely unwell and might be dying. What happens if you're there first? What happens if you're there second? What do you do? What do you train somewhat to deal with this, but how do you actually go about it? What happens if on your first day you're asked to prescribe fluids or paracetamol, these relatively basic things, but now it's on your head. You're the one that's made the prescription. What do you ask the patient? What do you do? What happens if you're asked to prescribe a drug that you've never been that you've never prescribed before. So all these questions and anxieties are filling the incoming F1's heads right now. And so I thought a really interesting bonus episode today would be for us to discuss some of this stuff for the people coming in. For those of you that aren't clinicians or haven't been on this journey or aren't medical students, it's a real look into what it actually takes to become a first year junior doctor some of those anxieties you'll hear about and you'll have an appreciation for the types of things that people have to do and some of the nuances that they have to uh, go through in what is a really unique and strange initial workplace it couldn't be any more different from a traditional office let's put it that way Um, so my guests today are well rob brisk who is an nhs cardiologist and computer scientist and he's been on before you'll know him from his ability to build large language models and he's been on a previous episode um and i've got will who is a current fy1 moving up and i've got tom who is uh, a medical student at Bristol who will be starting FY1. And so this is largely a conversation between Will and Tom with Rob and I jumping in, but Tom asking all the inverted commas silly questions or what seem like they might be silly questions, but are actually incredibly wise questions um, to Will, who answers them from his own experience with Rob and I talking about our experience, what is increasingly a long, long and longer time ago now, but how things have some some changed, but actually not all of them have changed a great deal. So um, yeah, really interesting on this, whether you're clinical or not, whether you're a med student or not. But obviously, if you're a medical student looking to do F1 soon, if you're uh, an F1 looking to figure out what the anxieties are, if you can't remember them yourself from a year ago, then uh, yeah, hopefully this is useful to quite a few people. So uh, yeah, hope you enjoy this one. So guys, like delighted to have you on. Um, Will, do you want to kick off with a bit of an intro? Yeah, thanks, James. Um, so, hi, I'm Will. So, as James mentioned, I am currently in F1 in London, uh, Whips Cross Hospital, uh, just finishing up a year there. I studied medicine at Bristol and will be carrying on in London as an F2, uh, starting the Royal London in, well, I guess about a week and a half as well. Yeah. Awesome. Major trauma centre, Royal London. I've got a few, I've got a few friends that work there. Tom. Yeah, thanks, James. So I'm Tom. I've just finished my medical degree at Bristol Medical School, um, hence how Will and I know each other. I'll be starting my F1 in a few weeks' time, although I move up next week to start with induction. Uh, I'm going up northeast to South Tees Trust, uh, and I, my jobs will be in acute medicine, general surgery, and paediatrics my first year of, of uh, doctoring. So feeling very nervous uh, with a tiny bit of excitement added in there, I think. <laughs> You'll be absolutely fine. It'll be glorious. Um, so, Will, it'd be great to hear from you about your experience of F1. So I think that there'll be lots of people that listen to this podcast that are clinicians. They will be junior. They'll be medical students. They'll be F1s. They'll be F2s. They'll be SHOs. They'll be registrars. They'll be consultants. There'll be people spanning the entire clinical spectrum that listen to this podcast. And so I think just hearing initially, like, your experience of F1 would be super useful so what has it been like tell me about the start tell me about what you learned and 
yeah, what you're going to pass on to the next generation. Yeah, well, I don't know what I'll pass on to the next generation, but um, I, I've actually had a, I think, I think on the whole, a very positive experience of F1. Um, so I did, I started on cardiology and then I did, well, my first placement was sort of like a hybrid two months cardio, two months stroke. Uh, and then I did pediatrics for four months and then I did general surgery for four months. And I think on the whole, it's been a very positive experience. There was times at the beginning uh, when it didn't feel particularly positive. Um, and there's a lot of going into the unknown and not knowing what you don't know, which I'd like to say it's settled after the first couple of months, but it did to an extent, but I think that kind of just carries on throughout the year, but you just become a bit more comfortable uh, in knowing what you don't know and in asking for the help that you need. I think for most of my sort of well colleagues and now friends that are F1s as well, they have had similar experiences from ones I've spoken to. I think on the whole, it's built to be this pretty terrible time. Um, but I think for the most part, it's actually, it's not too bad. And I guess that is, uh, that would be my take home message for anybody starting, I suppose. <laughs> there are definitely a load of specifics as well that we're, that we're going to go into. And I suppose, Tom, like with you about to go into this, you mentioned that you're, you know, nervous with a bit of excitement. Um, what are you nervous about? What are you excited about? It's difficult to distill what I'm nervous about down to a few points because I think there's so many at the moment. But I, if I did have to do that, I think just having to make decisions alone, I think, is, is, the, is the thing that's really scaring me. You know, as a fifth year medical student at Bristol, we had quite good exposure to, uh, we sort of acted up as F1s uh, to a certain degree, but we never had to make decisions that the F1s were making. We always got to run them past someone. So I think what I'm particularly nervous about is making decisions that no one else is going to cast a pair of eyes on for a at least a couple of hours um even simple things like prescribing fluids or prescribing basic drugs the idea of making a mistake there that could be quite costly is um is what wakes me up at 2 a.m at the moment so yeah that generally and then i think also the nerves that come with the move to f1 so not just the doctoring but also for me moving to a different part of the country uh with people i don't particularly know um Again, just the experience of having a, a full-time job going from being a student for the past six years is will be quite a transition. Um, so, so there's a lot to, to feel nervous about. In terms of what I'm excited about, I think just putting putting to use what I've what I've been learning for the past well throughout my degree. Um, I think for the, if you'd asked me for the first sort of four years or so of medical school, I would have said I felt nothing but excitement for, for actually becoming a doctor. And obviously, as that time has come closer, it's sort of those nerves have, have come in. But I'm trying to remind myself of what I was excited about, which is actually having having some responsibility and, um, yeah, being being useful for, for the first time in <laughs> in quite a while, and meeting new people. Particularly, Will and I are obviously good mates, and I know that he's made plenty of new friends in London, and it's it's a very good social scene. So that that as well, I'm sure, uh, will be great. Just right now, there's one thing that I can I'm fixated on, and that's starting starting work yeah nice the being useful thing i think is awesome because th that's such a that's such a real uh excitement after medical school when you've just been stuck in the corner of like an operating room like just as a spare part and you're there to observe you're there to try and do something useful but you just can't seem to make yourself useful so i, I actually think that being useful part gives you such meaning and purpose and that I think is one of the real, real, real positives because whilst it might be, you know, full of anxiety for, for prescribing stuff or whatever, like at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. Like you just become useful and all of a sudden, like all of that training just gets put to use. So it is great. I can remember when I was an F1, the, the first thing that happened was that I got a, a drug chart pushed in my face and someone said this person's got a headache and they need fluids prescribed and, and looking back now i'm sort of like this 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 nurse in charge was probably just testing me of like oh, see how confident i was like see that i'm sure things have changed a little bit but um in my head was like a million different questions of like can i can i prescribe paracetamol like can i have they got like a liver thing have, have they got like a like if they got some like weird contraindication, are they allergic? Like what, what can I, can I do that? And like the fluids, I was like, what shall I, Hartman's? Like, is that all right? So I prescribed fluids and 
after asking them far too many questions about liver disease, I prescribed them paracetamol. And then like every two minutes, every two minutes, I was checking on this patient that I prescribed fluids to make sure that they weren't like drowning in their own like lung fluid, just in case that like, if you got a cough, are you short of breath? Like, are you okay? <laughs> so I was like, just so hyper vigilant to that prescription. But on that note, um, Tom, you must have some specifics of things like that, perhaps, or others that you're thinking about as like the invert in inverted commas, stupid questions. I mean, I think things have changed massively in that we're definitely way more supportive, I think, than perhaps when Rob and I did F1 or even like you said, you've acted up as an F1 already. Like, God, the, the, the anxiety that I had around just taking bloods because like I'd done it once to get signed off and hadn't really hit a vein since. And now I'm expected to do it as a job. Like fortunately, I think those days are, are past us. What are the specifics now that you're, that you're worried about? And for people listening, I guess we can answer them as a group as much as we can. Um, and yeah, try and try and appease, appease some of that anxiety for people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you, you've so I've got a list of some some notes here. So forgive me if I keep on looking down, but you, you've actually hit one of them perfectly there, which is around. Well, it's, it's basically, starting F one is means that we'll have to start making decisions that we haven't had to make before, and it's I think it's really tricky knowing what decisions as a day one F one I can make independently versus which ones I need to run past the senior. So even things like fluids or paracetamol or um, starting antibiotics. And it's, I think it's made particularly difficult by the fact that as medical students, we're never actually on the wards in August because of our summer holidays. So by the time we, we hit the ground in September, you know, the F1s have already had a month to, to sort of get their bearings. So what I'd like to know, and I direct this at Will, but obviously everyone else, feel free to chip in, is what are the sort of decisions that I would be expected to make fully independently from my first week as an F1? And what, conversely, what are some decisions that actually F1 sometimes do make in their first week that they ought not to be? They ought to be getting some sort of senior supervision or support for. Uh, yeah, good question. There's not, uh, there's not really a nice, easy answer because uh, I had the exact same anxieties going into F1 because it things change massively when you when the decisions that you're making have um, have a person at the end of them. Uh, things that would be very straightforward decisions you suddenly like i'm like can i do this is this is this all right is this going to hurt them is this going to kill them am i am i going to miss something um and so even the really basic decisions when i started um i was running past at least an sho a lot of the time and the nice thing is is a lot of time it feels like this big oh god i've got to ask somebody this question or i've got to refer this patient or i've got to escalate it to somebody but a lot of the time that is just you're on your ward and it's your F2 sat next to you and you can just be like, can, can I, can I do this? And they're like, yes, obviously it's fluids. So I think in terms of the decisions that I would have made independently, not many at the beginning uh, without sounding uh, a bit overcautious or pathetic, but, and that's especially for the first like week, because the first week I remember being like, I really don't, don't feel confident doing a lot. Um, but then even after the first week, things like prescribing paracetamol for a headache, you've seen people do it 10, 15 times in the first week. And you're like, oh, okay, that's, that's okay. I can do that. I know the outcome and that's going to be fine. And similarly, fluids is another one that probably took me a bit longer to be comfortable with for those reasons. Like you don't want to, you hear about fluids, overload somebody and then going to flash palm redeemer and then you've caused somebody to become very unwell. But even that, you realize how often and maybe this isn't good practice, but how often more senior doctors will just prescribe fluids without really looking at the bigger picture. And then you start to realize, okay, I can do some of this stuff. And I was still looking at the bigger picture and looking at their heart function and kidney function, that sort of stuff for doing it. But you just become a bit more comfortable bit by bit when you realize everybody else does it and it's fine. I, def I definitely agree with that. And one thing that I would add is that if as an F1, you've been asked to prescribe something and do something and rob you can you could probably agree with this to some extent as well like if you've asked an f1 to go and do something like prescribe that person fluids even on a cardiology ward where you know you're you you might be completely fair to it to accept there's a few more anxieties prescribing fluids on a cardiology ward i think the fact that you've already asked the f1 to do it means it probably is fine and actually, you know, Rob, when you're when you're doing that, that actually 
so many people on that ward, practically everybody clinical on that ward already knows that it's fine. And actually, if it's not, there's 10, 15 people that are going to catch an error if it is going to be made. And so healthcare isn't just a single person effort. In order for you to prescribe fluids, let's say you prescribed the wrong fluid, you put potassium in it when they absolutely should not be having potassium. Well, the nurse is going to look at it as they as they administer it, and they're going to go, "This is not okay." If you pre- if you've prescribed way too much of a drug, it's going to be caught by someone going, mm, "That's that doesn't feel right. That's not okay." There are there are lots of these things that are built into the system that can appease your anxiety somewhat. In that, I think there's only so much wrong in inverted commas you can do because whatever's going to be asked of you, particularly at the start, is probably going to be within the realms of okay you're not going to be asked to prescribe a dose of a weird drug that you've never seen before without looking at the bnf like that just isn't a scenario that you're likely to be in i don't know if rob you've got anything to say on that yeah i i think that's a, a great point in terms of there are multiple layers of safety netting in most situations in terms of uh, allaying some of the anxieties you have going into fy1 I would caveat though, though with a couple of things. Um, and, and my take home message from this is really, if someone asks you to do something, don't feel like you should do it on the assumption that they know what F1 should and shouldn't do. Because I think it will happen that occasionally, you know, particularly very junior nurses or sometimes very senior nurses who have kind of, you know, almost forgotten what F1s can and can't do. That's a classic situation like you described, James, where, you know, okay, she was asking, she or he was asking you something very reasonable, but sometimes a nurse will just think, oh, there's a doctor, drug chart, mm. they need to prescribe something without realizing this is a week one F1. And the other time is, so one of my very early experiences was I had a renal job as my first job. And one of the SHOs just said, oh, go and see this patient who's become a bit breathless on dialysis. And this patient was like they had uh, end-stage COPD, obviously end-stage renal failure, cardiac failure, prone to chest infection. And it was quite complicated. And actually, I had to go back and say, because to the SHO, you know, this was probably a CT2. That assessment was was pretty easy, but they just, they were just far enough. They hadn't put me in a dangerous situation. They hadn't said, go and prescribe, you know, infliximab or something. But they, they, I, I did have to go back and say, I think this is a little bit beyond me. And, and in the end, the decision was while they were there on the dialysis machine, the, the consultant came down and said, okay, let's take an extra half a litre off today. And I couldn't possibly have done that. So I, I would say, you know, Will's point about, you know, if there's an expectation that you will run everything past someone early on, therefore don't feel bad about doing that is great. Your point, James, about the multi-layers of safety netting is great. And you will seldom be asked to do stuff that's dangerous. But if you're asked to do something, you think this is a little bit outside my comfort zone, don't be afraid to turn mm-hmm. around and say, actually, you know, I'm brand new. I haven't built my confidence yet because everyone's been there, right? So a few things, as Robert said, are really reassuring. One thing I think, Will, you mentioned that actually was was music to my ears is that this whole phrase of sort of get senior support is, is a very intimidating idea in my head. It's calling up a very angry consultant who's you know, overworked and, and doesn't want to hear from you. Whereas actually in reality, you're saying it's more like there's be just be an F2 sat next to you or an SHO or whatever. And it's just a friendly chat rather than any formal process of, of getting senior support, um, which is nice to hear. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I think that was the, the biggest kind of misconception I had going into it. Even things like on, on night shifts or whatever, that escalating to your med reg is messaging some someone you already know on WhatsApp and you've worked with before and essentially calling up a mate and being like, I'm thinking about doing this, this and this. Is that okay? Uh, and it's actually, I've, I've found it to be much less daunting a task in real life compared to what I thought it was going to be like going into F1, which has been nice. Well, what would you say about um, gut feel? Because I think what Rob talked about is that when he went into that room, it just felt out of his capabilities. What would you say about like trusting that? And I know, I know, Tom, it, it might be on your mind about like what, what should I do? What shouldn't I do in that scenario? How far can I push like resus and all that sort of stuff? I mean, it sounds like, Will, like over that year, the line sort of shifts of what I'm actually comfortable with. And it sounds like you just sort of go with whatever's comfortable and don't actually overthink it beyond that. But like, what do you, what do you think about gut feel and that kind of stuff? 
I think I think at the beginning it's difficult to rely on gut feel, uh, partly because nerves come into play, and so it's difficult to delineate what is just me being nervous about being a doctor, and then my gut feel about this is too complex for me. And so I think that can be tough to sort of separate the two at the beginning. And in addition to that, you don't you've not developed the clinical acumen to look at a patient and be like, this is this is good or this is bad with any degree of accuracy necessarily. You can obviously there is still an element of this doesn't look right and this isn't comfortable for me. And I think that's kind of the gut feel that I relied on early on. And whenever I, whenever I had that, one of the biggest lessons I learned during F1 and something I wasn't very good at at the beginning was whenever I felt, whenever you feel uncomfortable in a situation, when you've gone to see a patient whose oxygen requirements increased or they've, you, they've spiked temperature, you think they might have chest infection and all things that are relatively straightforward to manage in isolation, but when you're actually going and reviewing them and making all the decisions, anything like that that felt even remotely uncomfortable, I would always hesitate for a long time before escalating it or before discussing with a senior because there's the idea that I should be able to manage this myself. I know this is a relatively straightforward process and I should be able to do this. So I don't want to escalate for that reason. But then I always ended up doing it. I just maybe delayed it by half an hour trying to think of ways I could get out of having to escalate it because I didn't want to. Um, so I think in terms of gut feel, that was the biggest thing that I learned that whenever I, if I ever felt uneasy, then it's just always, always better to escalate it because you're going to end up doing it at some point. You might as well do it now rather than in an hour's time when you've wasted time trying to think of reasons that you can manage it yourself. I think you've, you've taken exactly one of my, my points there, Will, which I was going to ask you about later, which was given as a newly qualified F1, uh, will, or I'll be second guessing myself on all my decisions. How do I know when to escalate? Because in, in an ideal world, I would escalate every decision just to have a, someone else double check it. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I wonder if you could just talk to that maybe versus sort of in hours when you've got senior sport on hand in, in, in your ward versus out of hours when actually the stakes are a bit higher. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is that's a good question. That is, I think, that was definitely my biggest anxiety. I think, and I'd imagine it is for a lot of people coming in. Uh, in hours, fortunately, it's quite straightforward because it is a case of you'll be on a ward, you'll return to the doctor's office, and there is your F two there who is pretty much the same age as you, and now just one of your mates after you work for three months. You can just be like, "What should I do here? Can I do this? Is this okay?" Uh, and similarly, there are often regs around in the ward as well that you can ask. Um, Unless you're doing surgery, in which case you've got you've got bigger problems. But um, <laughs> but uh, out of hours is is de- is definitely the scarier part of escalating. It feels like a bigger deal to escalate because there's only you, the med reg, and two SHOs on overnight, and you're aware they're all busy with stuff. And that's when you're off on your own in the hospital, and there isn't somebody just right there that you can sort of tap on the shoulder and ask the question to. And I think there's no exact criteria for when. There's obviously no exact criteria for when to escalate something, but early on, like everything, all the time, and there's no there's no shame in that. I think they definitely felt like at the beginning there was shame in it, uh, and you do your best to not have to do that. Um, but the med reg, I've spoken to several med regs who I've worked with, and they've all said that it makes them anxious if they don't hear from the F1 overnight, or if they don't hear from them even just for a couple of hours. I've had a couple of night shifts where I've had a med reg who happened to be the med reg that I was on cardiology with so we we knew each other well so we would just message sort of regularly and there was like a two-hour gap where I hadn't messaged him because I think it's not much had happened and anything that had happened was really quite straightforward and he called me like what's what's going on where are you how's it been you've not messaged me in two hours uh, so I think at the beginning that's they expect that and it allays some of their anxiety knowing that they've got an f1 who's willing to talk to them because ultimately they're the ones responsible overnight and they don't want to hear about something two hours after it's happened when they should have heard straight away. And obviously there are different ways of escalating as well, because I think, yeah, the feeling is, is if you're escalating to a med reg, it's this sort of faceless person under the phone who's a bit scary and isn't going to want to help you. But in reality, it's some 28, 29 year old who's the same age as me, nice, friendly, happy to help, realizes you're starting F1 and wants to be useful. And it's the case of just messaging them on WhatsApp when you're on the way, well, if you've got a bleep, when you're on the way to see the patient, being like, by the way, he's got a bleep about this. This is what I'm thinking of doing. Anything else you think I should do when I get there? Or after you've seen something more straightforward, just messaging them being like, 
by the way, just seen this. This is what I've done. Anything else you want me to do? And that's all the extent of it a lot of the time. It's not a bigger deal as I think I made out to be at the beginning. Well, so on the topic of outgoing stuff, I guess another huge concern for incoming F1s is, is all around crash pools and, and carrying the crash bleep. So for me, that'll be my fourth day on the wards will be, I'll be carrying the crash bleep. What, at my first ever crash call as an F1, what should I do? Which role should I take on? What, what, how can I be useful to the team as someone who feels like they, they know nothing in that scenario? The good, the good news is that most crash calls, there's loads of people there. So you'll often, if you're lucky, you'll turn up and there's already a few people there. If you're unlucky, uh, you'll turn up and there's nobody else there. Uh, so I think it, it, what you do depends on, obviously depends on whether you're first there or not. But in general, you turn up, there's already a med race there, maybe some from ITU. Uh, maybe some like critical care outreach nursing team are there as well. In general, the most useful thing that I've found to do, obviously, sort of all the clinical stuff aside, assuming somebody else is doing the A to E and actually managing the patient, the most useful thing for the F1 is normally just to grab a computer. Um, depending on whether you're in a hospital with paper notes or computer notes or electronic notes, just grab a computer, start, get the patient's notes up, and then because the med reg or whoever's running the arrest is going to want to know past medical history, their most recent bloods, what's been going on during the day today, have they been unwell, were they unwell on the ward round, all that sort of stuff. So I think actually just getting a computer up and and not being afraid to, not to interject, but to, to offer up information to the med reg without necessarily them having to ask for it. Because there'll be so many other things that they're trying to manage at the same time, that having somebody there who's willing to say, these are the bloods from today, that I don't know, their potassium was was 5.8 earlier in the day, just so we know, or this is their past medical history, they've got heart failure, they've had previous MI, um, if it's relevant. I think being that person can be very useful. And it's nice because you feel like you're doing something useful. It's very easy in a crash call to just be standing on the peripheries and not really do anything and just feeling like a bit of a lemon, which is also okay. And I've done that lots of times as well. When someone when said, Joe has a computer and somebody else is getting venous access and somebody else is doing the ABG, you just stand there and you're like, well, I am useless. What am I doing here? But that's also kind of okay, I think. What if you are first there, Will? Oh, God. That's <laughs> triggering. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> if you are first there, then the key is, which I think everybody can be guilty of to an extent, the key is just to, oh, it sounds cliche, just to remain calm uh, because there'll be, and it's it's really quite an intimidating environment to walk into because there'll be a crash bell going off which in itself is just a horrible sound there'll be nurses hjs five or six around the patient all running around doing stuff there'll be a patient there who is unwell to some degree uh and then there'll be on top of that there'll be the nurses asking you what to do and i've had that a couple of times and it's it's very easy for just everything to just leave your head um but i think the, the, obviously the most important thing is eyeball the patient and then just remember your A to E and if you remember and it's what well, we get drilled into at medical school but if you remember your A to E you you can't go very far wrong uh, and if you do that you can't really be criticised for the starting your A to E and if you get there and you realise the patient is actually <clears throat> sat up in bed chatting you then realise you've got maybe you've got a bit of time to ask the nurse for a quick history or ask the patient for a quick history before you go into that but in general, just your A to E. And as actually, in fact, I think I saw a, a video that Rob made talking about um, <clears throat> arrest calls, that there are very few things where the seconds count. And most of the time you have time to make a decision, but the only time that seconds matter is if somebody doesn't have a pulse or isn't breathing, in which case you need to be able to recognise that quickly, which normally you can, um, but you have to just check for that. That's the one thing you really can't miss. Uh, and then start CPR and put a crash call out. Right, so on that word, and James, I think you asked exactly the question I was going to ask there with the follow-up question of, you know, what if you are first there? Assuming you are first there and worst case scenario, you've got, you're there for five minutes dealing with it by yourself. What interventions would you be expected to do as an F1? Because I know, as you say, in the simulations that we do at medical school, you sort of say you want something and it gets done immediately. Because obviously real life isn't like that. What would your register turn up to the crash school and think, my F1 should have done this by now? Um, yeah. And, and a, sorry, a follow-up question to that is what, versus simulation in medical school to the, to the real crash schools when you are a brand new F1, 
what were the biggest differences there? What were the biggest things that you thought, oh, wow, this, is, this isn't actually how it happens in real life? Uh, yeah, so I guess, well, I guess, it, again, it depends on the state of the patients. If, if they are, if there is an actual cardiac arrest, then uh, realistically, you won't have done your ALS by the time you're starting F1. Uh, you may not even have done it by the end of F1. So you, I don't think you're going to be expected off the bat to be sort of looking at whether the rhythm is shockable or non-shockable, going down either of those pathways with adrenaline, amiodarone, et cetera. But I think if there is an actual arrest, you'd be expected to initiate BLS, so CPR, essentially, and to have put a crash call out and to be getting defib pads on. And then if it's not an actual arrest, so if it's somebody who's either peri-arrest or it's just sort of a false alarm, uh, then the things you'd be expected to do are to start an eight, well, one, to put a crash call out to get other people there. That's the most important thing you can do straight off the bat. Um, and then start your A2E um, and just be working through that and have taken some sort of a history from either the patient or the nurse. So that when the med reg gets there, when the ITU reg gets there, you can say you can have some sort of like like concept of what has happened to this patient rather than just I've arrived there's a patient who is, looks a bit sweaty, clammy, and I've just started listening to their chest and I've not actually gathered any sort of information. Um, so I think a very brief history and starting your A2E. And then similarly, there's things, you, pretty much every crash that you go to, the things you're going to need are an ECG, bloods, venous access, and ABG. Yeah, and you can ask for those whilst you're doing other stuff. And you can be forgiven for having not done that if you're just starting your A2E and Medred isn't going to be annoyed if they turn up and there's not an ECG done or they don't have access or they're not having ABG. But in general, those are just like the four things you can reel off and ask the nursing team around you to help you with whilst you're doing A2E. And then if you do that, you'll be pretty far ahead, I think, of most F1 starting off. Well, I just want to come in there for a second. You, so I'm for context, I practice in Northern Ireland and in certainly in our trust, every F1 has done ALS. I heard you right. In England, you're still starting F1 without having done ALS. Yeah. So I only did ALS in March. Just one comment then with that in mind. And by the way, I don't think that's great news. No, you know, I, I don't think anyone should be sticking a stethoscope around their neck without doing ALS, but nothing anyone listening to this can do about that, right? But yeah. uh, the one thing I would say then is as someone showing up to an arrest where an FY1 had done the initial management, I, I would expect them to have shocked to shockable rhythm. And I think that's absolutely key because that is life and death. And in, particularly in peripheral hospitals, like outside of the London area, sometimes I, maybe things have changed, but I was the only FY1 at an arrest for sometimes minutes in big sprawling hospitals where the Reds and the SHO are down in A&E and you're on the 12th floor. Um, so I, the, the, one, the one tip I would give to anyone starting... F1 who hasn't done ALS and isn't comfortable with rhythm recognition is it's absolutely fine to use your DFib in AED mode and you, you should be doing that. So on day one, if you're not confident about this on day one, make sure you know what your hospital's DFibs looks like, how to put them in AED mode and use them. And obviously I'm biased because I'm a cardiologist. So our patients do have arrhythmic arrests, but that, that that's the one extra thing I would say. And, and yeah, yeah. So I should have clarified when I said, not to go down the shuckle or non-shuckle route. I more meant in the ALS sense, but yeah, as part of the BLS, definitely be putting pads on and using it in AED mode if you're not comfortable reading the rhythm and initiating either pathway. Yeah, just on the uh, sort of the logistics of carrying the crash people then, Will. Um, a few hopefully fairly simple questions. What do I do on my breaks and lunch? Who, who do I take it with me? Is there someone who's designated to take over? And when I'm when I'm called off to a crash call. Is there any etiquette around helping out on my workload while I'm away from the wards, or is it just every, every man and woman for themselves? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, you have to take it with you. That little, uh, that little I'm going to swear, that little guy goes with you, goes with you everywhere, <laughs> unfortunately, um, which means, yeah, lunch and toilet breaks, et cetera. In terms, of, uh, in terms of workload, I mean, normally, so whenever I hold a crash beat, normally it'll be when you're on call, so like out of hours stuff, um, which means that your your job is to be the crash, tech, like holding the crash beep and going to arrests. And you'll obviously have some other kind of peripheral tasks you're doing, getting bleeped out at the same time, which you won't necessarily get additional help with. But if you're 
if you're say on take or whatever and you're holding a crash beat um then and you have to go and that takes an hour or an hour and a half and you by the time you get back you've obviously got more work to do people uh, there's generally people will try and help out and people chip in and do bits and bobs but uh, the nature of it is is that going to a crash can derail your morning or your afternoon because it just takes time and it takes precedence over everything else and it might be that you come back to a pile of work uh, or some patients that you need to see and you can try and mitigate that as best you can by enlisting people to help you and people are generally quite understanding but it can kind of just derail your morning there's not a huge amount you can always do about it if you get unlucky can I can I just interject for one second because you just reminded me I did once it would it wasn't my F one year it was either F two or one of my SHO years did once drop the crash beat down the toilet <laughs> <laughs> talking about taking it on toilet breaks because you know the way it, it clips into your scrub's pocket right yeah, it's all yeah, over yeah. the place yeah and it dropped it in. down the U bend yeah. uh, so I had to had to fish it out and take it to switchboard with my tail between my Glorious. legs and say, can I have a new beep? those things are robust though Rob I bet it I bet it worked afterwards. It, it didn't. It didn't. I succeeded in breaking it. Oh, yeah. wow. Wow. <laughs> Save yourself expensive jobs. Yeah. Oh, um, oh, a, a question just for, just for all of you. I, th- I think you may have answered this already in, in your helpful tips so far, but do you have any sort of nice general tips to summarise how F1 should approach emergencies? Any Anything you wish you'd known or thought about beforehand, both being in F1 and also both being on the other end of the referrals from F1 to have dealt with these emergency situations? Again, I think it sounds like a cliche, but I think the main thing is just to remember the basics and not to panic and to do your A to E, which sounds, it does sound obvious and it sounds straightforward, but it is very easy for some of that to just kind of go out of your head when you get into that situation. And I think the other thing to remember is that there is, there is very little, there are very few things in medicine where you don't have 10, 15, 20 seconds to just think and to stop and be like, is there anything that I'm missing? And and it's something I've started doing now. I did it less at the beginning. I would get to a crash call, whether it's an actual arrest or not an actual arrest. And I'd just start doing my A2E because I'm like, that's, that's what I'm supposed to do. And just start going through the motions of it. Whereas now what I've found that I'm slightly better at after having done it for 10 months and feeling silent more comfortable in the situation, I'll actually stop and think in my head and tick off A, B, C. Have I, does anything need to be done? Have I changed anything? Do I need to go back and check it? And then that just, I find that it's just helped massively in terms of how I feel about the situation, how I feel about I've managed the situation. Um, yeah, I think just taking time and realising you have time normally to have a think. I, I, I'll come on in that just to echo Will's point. I mean, Will said you've been doing it for 10 months. I actually think it's 11 months, Will. I mean, I, I've been doing it for, for 13 years and, and I do exactly the same. You know, I, I, I rock up and there's always 30 seconds. If they're not in actual cardiac arrest, 30 seconds to take a breath, get my head straight. And if I'm in any doubt at all, A, B, C, D, E, I still do that now. Um, so, yeah, great advice, Will. Uh, and I would I would say absolutely you know, the, the take home. Um, for dealing with emergencies in F1. James? Yeah, there's something in this because my tip was going to be exactly the same. It was going to be you don't actually have to do anything initially. You can approach an emergency and just do nothing but look, appreciate all the information that you've got in front of you and think about what the best first thing is to do. That really is incredibly important. Um the other thing I would say, again, I think you guys have covered it with your A to E thing, but have those default first steps rote learned. Just have that completely yep. and utterly. Have that somewhere that you can access, even if you are the most stressed you've ever been, the most forgetful you've ever been, you've got a thousand things on your mind. Just have this system that you can employ that just becomes second nature. And it's funny because that is still something I do today. There's far less on the line, but when I'm public speaking, when I'm public speaking and I've got a talk or something that I've got to do, many podcasts and this, that, and the other, like I have the first two minutes learned whether that's like how I'm introducing myself, how I'm introducing the guests, how I'm announcing it to the room, like where the fire exits are, like all of that stuff I've just got learned so that to your point, well, like 
you're just the you're in motion and so once you've started it's then easier because you're in the motion of it and other things will come to you and then you might switch the order around and then you might notice oh god they just haven't got venous access i need to get that pretty soon because i can see that their blood pressure is dropping so let me just change this up or whatever but the point is is that you've just started and you've done that automatically so yeah i think absolutely in any emergency situation chill out absorb the information decide what you're going to do and whether or not you go to it have those things learned that you can just do something and make that second nature i would only say that's so important and, and a, having a b c d e absolutely nailed yeah. like like you you i was going to say you so you can do it in your sleep but you're right so that you can do it like when the world is falling apart around you it'll just save you and it'll save your patient mm. I, I know we're, we're kind of running a little bit low on time and the content's been hugely valuable so far. I, I just wanted to cycle back to something that might be on your question list, Tom. But James, when we were chatting before we started recording, you mentioned getting your ass handed to you by a cardiologist making mm. a referral. I mean, I've had that so many times um, because unfortunately there are still a lot of grumpy people in the NHS. So on the, on the person, as the person on the receiving end of referral, and I'll maybe jump in on this after you, James, any tips you know when you were working as an anesthetist or in critical care and you had someone junior pick up the phone to you what are you looking for um the same thing i'm looking for now when someone picks up the phone and decides to ring me which is to be respectful of my time respect that we are all stretched for time and i'm gonna be incredibly nice uh i just need to know what i need to know and so the main thing, and the reason I got my ass handed to me as a cardiologist is because I had the audacity to try and refer a patient to a cardiologist without knowing what the ECG was and without having the ECG in front of me. And that is so incredibly basic. And it was early in my F1 career that that only needs to happen once before it doesn't ever happen again because the cardiologist chooses a few words down the phone to make you never forget that that's not a very good idea. Um <laughs> So, you know, all's well that ends well. But the point is, it, it, when you are making that, it's just to think about who you're referring to. Think about who you're referring to and what that person might need. And you might not have it all neatly written down in the right order, but at least have the notes by you. At least have that person's record open if you're, if you're digitized. At least know where all the information might be. that You can access it if that person asks a question to you. So that'd be my main tip is just think about who you're referring to, put yourself in their shoes. What are they likely to need to know? And you don't necessarily need all the information up front. Just have it somewhere near you so that you can access it. That would be my tip. Yeah. And I'd echo that. And Will, you probably come in on this too, but yeah, on on the few times I've had my ass handed to me, it's usually because I've been because I've made a referral and the notes haven't been sitting on the desk in front of me, or you know I haven't been right next to a computer. Um, because yeah, you the the reason you're referring is you don't know what the other person's going to want to know and how they're going to make a decision. Because otherwise, why would you be referring? So they're going to want information you haven't already surfaced. Um, I, I would say. Uh, I, I think we'll probably mention it at the end of the show, but one of the things we're going to mention is that we've put together this FY1 survival guide that um, anyone can access with a load of great resources. On there, I've done a bunch of cardiology boot camps for F1s. Nice. And I keep using the phrase, seek senior help early. Um, and, and, and like you said earlier on in this um, podcast, Tom, you know, it, it's not always clear what that means. I, I would say just to, just to add a little bit of color around that, as well as what you said, James, about like be respectful of time, have all the details someone might need. Also be very clear about why you're ringing the person. And for me, in early August, if I'm on shift and someone picks up the phone to me and says, the reason I'm ringing you is I've got a sick patient, I'm a brand new F1, and I'm worried I'm missing something. Like that's, that's okay. That's mm -hmm. a good enough reason. As long as they can then tell me everything I want to know over the phone as I walk them through it. And, and later on in your career, of course, I'll be expecting you to pick up the phone because you're saying, I'm not sure whether this broad complex tachycardia is VT or an SVT with aberrancy. You know, so it'll, it'll evolve over time. But I think those are the two things. Just lead with, here's why I'm phoning you, and then have all the information in front of you. And the one last thing while we're on this topic before I kick over to Will is that that's, a, that's, I think, a reasonable set of expectations. You will, some people listening to this will encounter people, specialists who basically expect the juniors to have 
done their job for them, gone through the entire thought mm. process. We had we had an awful neuroradiologist in the hospital where I did some of my foundation training. And you'd phone them up and they'd, they'd ask you these crazy questions that would appear on, you know, the specialist exam where you're subspecializing in neuroradiology. And they'd leave you feeling like absolute crap. I just say, you know, you have to have thick skin as an NHS doctor. That's that's the bottom line. That's a good place to start exercising that. If someone else is expecting you to know all about their specialty and to have already thought through all the thought processes they're going through, that's their problem, not yours. Mm. And don't take that home with you. Don't let it make you feel like you're bad at your job. It's a great tip. One more thing I would add, a great phrase that someone taught me once, a consultant, or was it a registrar, that basically said to me was that you, as an F1, you can use the phrase, I need your help. And it's just a wonderful way of at least partially disarming someone that you haven't just led with, oh, I'm a great referrer and here's my referral. You're actually saying, hey, I'm an F1, I'm overwhelmed and I need your help. Here's what, here's what I've got and here's what I need. And actually just being honest about that and positioning yourself in that place rather than trying to say, you need to come and help me because, and that slightly changes the dynamic. So I think positioning yourself as someone in need of help is a nice way of accessing that other person's more caring nature rather than that person's, let's call it a teaching nature. Uh, yeah, I would also echo what uh what rob said about having a thick skin um because you are it's, it's all well and good having making a referral for the right reasons and make sure you've got the information and you're leading with the question that you want to ask but as an f1 you are going to make referrals and ask for advice for things that you don't think you should be making referrals or asking advice for and that is just the nature of a consultant makes a decision <clears throat> during a ward round which you can if you feel comfortable you can question to an extent and you can ask for more details as to why they would like you to discuss with him or micro or ender or whatever especially it is but ultimately you will still sometimes have to call up for advice on things which you don't necessarily think require advice and you just have to accept that sometimes you'll be making a referral that isn't isn't great and you can try and mitigate that by doing all the right things like you you guys have both mentioned um but I think having a thick skin is important uh, and you will get a few select words from people down the phone. Um, and I think just being nice and asking for help, like you mentioned, James, is the best way to try and mitigate that and having all the information there and ready. Right. Yeah, they're all really useful tips. I think the conversation has been a bit too cheery for my liking so far. So let's move on, <laughs> move on to the dying form of the uh, part of my notes. Um, so, Will... You're, you're probably the best place for this one. I think even when I was on the wards last year with, with F1s, there was a bit of confusion around the F1s role in respect forms or do not resuscitate forms. Um, can, can you just clarify what your role has been in them, whether you've been able to fill them in, what the legalities are around them, and then we can move on to maybe how to approach those those situations? Uh, yeah, so my my understanding is, I don't know if this is sort of national or if this is trust-specific, uh, is that an F1 can fill out a respect form, so a DNA CPR form or future care planning form, and it's valid for 24 hours uh, until a consultant signs it. So that's not to say that I necessarily would would fill that form out without discussing it with a reg or consultant first. But my understanding is the legality of it is it's valid for 24 hours until it's been countersigned by a consultant. Uh, Will, just to, just to clarify one thing you just said, you, you would discuss with a reg or a consultant, would you? Because I, I kind of would expect an F1 to have discussed with a reg or consultant or uh, yeah. SAS grade at that level to before signing a form, right? Yeah, definitely. So I would. So I guess the, the most common scenario is this: if you're on on like on the take on the medical take, uh, which is where I've encountered it most commonly. On medical take, somebody comes in who is older, a bit more frail. You think probably should not be for full escalation uh, but doesn't currently have anything in place i would always even though I'm, I'm relatively confident in that decision i would never just go ahead and fill out a form without discussing with the reg or consultant i would maybe initiate the conversation so if i'm if i'm clerking a patient in um and they've not yet been post take so i clerk them in i would then maybe broach that conversation towards the end of the consultation because i feel like it's just sort of anticipating what the consultant's likely to want um, and then when I post take with the consultant, I would then 
sort of discuss that as part of the management plan and then they would then give the final sort of go ahead like yes go ahead and fill out a, a respect form and I'll countersign it sort of thing but I wouldn't go ahead and just sign one without because it's quite a, quite a big deal removing somebody's right to life-saving treatment uh, so I wouldn't do that as an F1. And are there any any tips that in your experience that have worked or for things that work particularly well when approaching or just having those conversations any phrases any openers? Yeah um so I think the way I always, I, yeah, I kind of like, if you like stock phrases, the way I always approach it is I'll normally leave it till the end of the consultation because it can, it can take time for starters and it can also sort of derail any other sort of clinical discussion you might have been having beforehand. Uh, I'd leave it for the end and I would always phrase it as in, this is something that we've discussed with everybody who comes into hospital. So framing it in the context of, I don't think you're about to die and there's any risk of you dying in the next 24 hours, 48 hours. But, and I'll often give like a time frame. but say if in six months something were to happen, it means that we will then know how you would like to be treated in, the, in case you aren't able to tell us yourself at the time. Um, and that often, I think, alleviates a bit, of the, a bit of the anxiety around it and they then see it as a less threatening sort of discussion. Um, and they, and they, as long as they don't think you're imminently worried about them. Often it's surprising how many people haven't thought about it. Or maybe not surprised, I don't know. I always find it surprising. Sort of older patients who are quite frail and quite unwell, you'll broach broach it by saying, I'd now like to ask you about something we talked to everybody about. Have you thought about sort of future planning for your for your healthcare in the advance in the instance you were to become unwell? And they'll often say they might have questions about what you mean and you can clarify it. And then they'll often say they haven't really thought about it at all. And so I think it's often good to then you planted that seed and said, okay, well, maybe this is something that's worth thinking about and discussing with your relatives. Um, but I think one thing I would, I did too often early on is I felt the obligation to sort of persist with that conversation. And I think sometimes actually planting that seed and allowing them time to have a think is the first step in that process. Uh, and I think now I'm more, I'm more likely to almost leave it there and be like, okay, I've planted the seed. Maybe there's something you should have a chat about. Uh, and then revisit it if you get a chance, rather than trying to force them far more quickly through that process than they might be ready for. And then, I guess, on the same subject of, sort of dying, and um, well, what has your experience been for your role in anticipatory prescribing and, and end-of-life care? Uh, is, is that almost exclusively senior-led, or are you expected to take on a role independently in someone's palliative treatment? No, so I wouldn't. I would never myself, similar to with a respect form, if I go to see a patient who I think, say it's overnight and somebody, I get called about somebody who uh, is oxygen requirement has gone up drastically um, and they're now sort of saturating 90% on 15 litres and you go and see them and you read through the notes and you realise this person has been very unwell for a long time. This is probably, a, this is possibly sort of heading towards a terminal event. I wouldn't prescribe sort of a whole set of anticipatories there i would then discuss with the reg before prescribing anticipatory medications or before deeming them sort of palliative um assuming i have time etc and this is all yeah assuming that there's time to make those decisions and it's not sort of like a crash course scenario um but in general i would prescribe anticipatories i'm comfortable prescribing them once i've discussed that decision with a registrar at least Probably not even an SHO, to be honest. Um, I just go straight to discussing with the reg because, again, it's quite significant. If you're if you're prescribing anticipatories, then you're essentially saying this person isn't going to be for active management for much longer. So I'd normally discuss that. Yeah, yeah. And there's also the fact that there are some medications you just don't prescribe. Really, I would say as an F1 without speaking to someone else, and that they're, they're all on the list, right? You know, diamorphine, midazolam, antipsychotics like haloperidol. Okay, maybe higher scene. If you're going for that, that's not so bad. But I, I, th I think if you say to myself, right, I'm, I'm not going to prescribe heavy duty benzos, opiates, opioids, or antipsychotics ever as an F1 without speaking to someone senior, that'll kind of answer your question about the end of the, the anticipatory med train. Um, I'm aware of timing, so I've got a few more questions on dying and respect forms, but I think we'll maybe leave them and just get on to the more interesting stuff that we get interesting to get all your opinions on. Um, so I'm aware that two of you are doctors who are no longer working in NHS full-time, which sort of might link into this question of how have you three practically dealt with stress or did you during your foundation years? And how 
what how did you recognize burnout versus just being a stressed out doctor in the nhs what's normal and what's abnormal that's a great question um (laughs) burnout isn't exclusive to being a clinician it isn't exclusive to the nhs and actually you know I've, i've got my experiences of it in and out i think there are when we're talking about tips for F1s, right, which is why we're here, uh, tips for incoming F1s, I think that knowing yourself and just appreciating, okay, here's my normal function. Here's how many times I see my friends. Here's how many times I play sport and go to the gym. Here's how many hours sleep I get roughly per night. And just going like, that's generally me. And of course that takes a hit when you start work, but within reason, you'll know this is generally me. And when you first start, you're super supported and the rest of it. So you'll get into a routine and I think fix yourself in the knowledge of like, okay, that's the life that I want. That's the life that I need. And that's what sustains me and keeps me happy. Um, I think where that starts to take a really significant hit then all of a sudden the things that are propping up your mental fitness are starting to disappear. And that should, the, like warning signs should go off. Like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to go to the gym. I'm not going to play sport. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do footy at the weekend. I'm not going to play tennis. I'm not going to see my mates on Friday night. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. All of a sudden, then there's a huge bit of your life that you're no longer doing. And that actually is, is going to start to cause problems. So I would say a tip there is like, be very aware that that is not a good thing. And actually that you're now at risk. Now, if you pile on some unlucky work things in a row, breaking a lot of bad news, some really stressful shifts that were just stressful shifts because something that means that, you know, you've had a bad referral and someone's had a go at you. There are all these things now that that are now chipping away at you and you haven't got your resilience from all of the good things that you're doing. And so these things can put you really at risk. And I think it's acknowledging that that at a certain point, you might be underperforming for what you think is good enough for you. You might be short-tempered. You might be really tired to a degree you've never really felt before. You might be personality-wise someone completely different and you don't really recognise yourself. These are all in, like really big warning signs. Um, and bear in mind, I've had these inside and outside of medicine. And so, you know, I'm very aware of it. So my tip here would really be like before you're getting into the problem scenarios is firstly acknowledge that F1 is a lot of new information and it's physical, it's mental, it's emotional and get enough sleep, get more sleep than you would normally, particularly in the early days. I can remember getting home in still dressed in scrubs face down on the bed and then waking up 12 hours later being like, woof, yeah, I really needed that. And like, that's real. You, you you need more sleep to process the amount of stuff going on. So actually remember that. The other thing is, Will, you talked about it at the start that a little bit that your F1 year is a group of you in this together. L- really lean into that because sometimes you're not going to feel okay. You're going to feel upset about something. I I can remember an on-call I did, like a ward on-call, which was just, it was just very, very chaotic. And one of the problems I think as an F1 is that at the beginning, Will, you might be able to identify with this. When you have 24 things on your to-do list, all 24 carry the same weight, which is way more difficult than 12 months later when you realise only three of those are important and urgent and actually... 21 of those things are not like I can just take my time or hand them over. And that's more easy to deal with than right at the start. And so I had one of these, these, these shifts where I was dosing warfarin and I was seeing fast AF and I was uh, breaking bad news. And I remember breaking bad news to someone. It was a weekend and I I felt very junior to do it, but the reg had their own stuff going on. And like, they were very nice and honest about it, that I just had to do this. And I just went into the corridor and burst into tears. And I was like, I'm not okay. Like this is, this is not okay. But I gathered myself and like sorted myself out. But I found people in the hospital at that point to speak to. Like, I know there was other things on my to-do list, but I lent into other people. I lent into other F1s. I gave people a call that were at home just being like, I'm just having this on call, blah, blah. And they gave you that pep talk and they, they 
tell you it's all going to be fine. And I really lent on my support network of those other F1s. And I think that's a really beautiful thing because you will go through it together. You will learn together and you will be able to lean and support on each other. But also like if you're one of the ones that's doing okay, like take, take a role of responsibility there and actually like check everyone else's. And, and there's, there's a, there's a, a nice sort of load to bear there, I think. But the, the final thing that I would say um, about burnout and ensuring that you don't is that also acknowledge that it's okay to enjoy it. Like it's okay to actually really love the fact that you're doing this now. You've trained for five years. You're a little bit excited. You mentioned that's awesome. Like lean into it. Like, yeah, you prescribe fluids and no one drowned. Like, great, celebrate it. That's awesome. And use that energy to go on to the next thing. Hey, I prescribed this drug that I never prescribed before. And when I came in tomorrow, they're still on the ward sitting up talking. This is awesome. I now feel more comfortable doing that. Like (laughs) these little wins that you're going to get, you're on the steepest part of the curve for all the things that are glorious and enjoyable about learning medicine and doing medicine. And so that kind of constant achievement towards a goal, which is you becoming a very good doctor, you're at the steepest part of. And so I would really encourage you to practice enjoyment and gratitude and celebrating the wins because there's going to be plenty of them and use that energy for the resilience for the more difficult days. So that would be all of my advice. James, that, that was a beautiful answer. I kind of wish you'd said that to me when I was about to start my <laughs> Wish I said it to yeah, myself, a, a, Rob, honestly. Because <laughs> I just watched you do it. I just watched you do it off the cuff. It was, that was great. Oh my God, it's printed <laughs> on a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. The, the only, uh, the only other thing I would say, other than saying that was really sound advice, was I just want to speak to the people and, and, and there will be some of these people who do struggle during F1 and, and, and there will be people who, who get into F1 and decide this isn't for them uh, as a career. I, I just want to say that that's okay too, because you'll feel an enormous pressure. You'll, you go into F1, it's so far outside the sphere of normal experience. You know, you'll, you'll bring new life into the world. You'll get covered in blood as patients die traumatic deaths. You'll, you'll have all these crazy experiences that normal people don't have. And, we're all made differently in terms of our mental resilience. And a lot of the people around you will seem to be coping brilliantly with this, even if they're not inwardly, you'll get that appearance. Don't, I, 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 it's easy said and hard done, right? But don't feel that you are under any obligation to cope as well as them or to feel on the inside the way they appear to be feeling on the outside. And, you know, it takes all sorts to make the world go around, right? Not everyone needs to be a hero, and be able to take endless pressure in what is, I think, a failing system. I, I would describe the NHS in those terms these days. It is a, an incredibly tough, stressful place to work. If it isn't for you, or if you find it much tougher going than you think everyone around you is finding it, like that's completely okay. That's completely okay. Make concessions to that. Find ways to make it more sustainable. If you need some time off, or if you need to leave entirely and think, you know what, I you know, spent five years at medical school, just for those small number of people, you know, a medical degree is always a huge asset to have. If you go into F1, think actually, I don't want to do this full time. You are at such an advantage compared to just about every other graduate out there with those, you know, MBBCH letters after your name. Um, so I think that will be a small minority of people <clears throat> who leave, but probably a majority of people who look around them and think I'm coping less well than everyone else because we're all good at presenting a, an image of ourselves that doesn't reflect what's actually going on the inside. I, I just wanted to to speak to that. Um, but I would also say, you know, James, your answer, if, if, there's, if there's a soundbite people take away, that was such a good one. Yeah, I think I would, I don't really have much to add to either of those. I think I would just say having gone through F1, that talking to the other F1s makes such an enormous difference. And it's also important to be aware that at the beginning, you don't know them that well, and they are going to present this front of everything's I'm actually doing all right because nobody wants to be seen to be the person that isn't coping so at the beginning it can be it can seem like everybody else is fine even when you have conversations with them that you're not fine for example but it's it's only like 10 months in 11 months in 12 months in where I'm actually now good friends with these f1s because we know we've worked together for 12 months we've gone socials together we've gone out together sometimes people live together you realize that actually everybody more or less was in the same position at the beginning everybody was like 
oh my god what is going on and but nobody nobody outwardly expresses it and so you feel like you are the only person who isn't confident managing this or who made this mistake or who had to ask the med reg 10 times last night what to do but everybody has done it and but nobody talks about it at the beginning because obviously nobody wants to so i think that's important to remember um and then what jane said about the the wins because that is the days when you go home and you're like wow that was a good day i did this and this i managed this patient and the consultant agreed with my plan on the post take and nothing had to change all that sort of stuff it feels really good and you just need to remember that and take that home with you because that is then what makes you go back and if you didn't have that you it would just be it would just be shit so remember that I, I've, that's interesting you say that, Will. You're now reminding me that I've seen you enough times now after on a Friday evening when you've come to Bristol and you've almost been elated after a good shift and you've been sort of, you can't wipe the smile off your face because you feel like you've actually done something really good. And I, think, I think it's those things that are easy to forget in, in the situation I am now. So as Rob said, staring down the barrel of the gun is that there are some some really nice things to it that no other job really, really can offer. Yeah, definitely. So guys, thanks so much for joining me. Um, Rob, yeah, Olus Medical. We know that you know your role at Olus, Olus Medical from uh, from the last time you're on the podcast, and so you guys have put together this F1 survival guide. Um, we'll put a link to that in the show notes, so everybody listening um, can feel free to read it, forward it on to anyone that you know who is starting F1. Um, but yeah, Rob, Will, thanks for coming on. Tom, all the best with it. I'm sure you're going to be absolutely fine. Um, and yeah, just call Will if you've got any problems. So kind of ideal uh, if you've got his number. <laughs> so, <laughs> day or night, all good. Forget Will, James. I'll be using you as a life coach now. So you have to tell me you're right. Oh, I don't know what position that'll put you in in a year's time. But anyway, um, yeah, guys, thanks for, thanks for joining me. We'll, we'll probably do this when uh, when Tom, you finished F1, and we'll do it, do it again for you to pass on to the next one. But uh, it's been, it's been an absolute that'd pleasure. Be interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think it would. Mm. I think it would. Um, but yeah, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content. 